0: We're going to have two sermons celebrating, remembering the day of Pentecost, this week and next week. And so the text that D. Wayne read to us this morning, I'd like to go back to that and as we begin to study God's word, let us hear again the first 13 verses of the book of Acts chapter 2. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, "'Why, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans?' And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, now let's remember the scene that this comes, what, what has preceded this. Jesus was constantly telling the disciples that he was going to be killed that he was going to Jerusalem, and he would be killed. But that three days later, he would arise from the dead. So it got closer and closer and closer and closer until it was the night of his betrayal. That night, they were in the upper room, and the Bible records for us something that's of great comfort to sinners, which was that the disciples were in the upper room, striving amongst themselves as to which of them was the greatest. So they knew the weight of the moment. They knew Jesus' suffering had begun. They could see him. He was wearing the weight already, and in that context, they were fighting amongst themselves as to which of them was the greatest. So Jesus was crucified, and after he was crucified, he rose again from the dead, and the disciples didn't believe it until it actually happened. And when he rose from the dead, then the disciples had... Completely changed already, so that now what they wanted to do was give themselves to building the kingdom of heaven. And yet, what we see is that they were focused on the kingdom very earthly way. So that they said to Jesus, Now is the kingdom going to come? Now are we going to get the goodies? And so. They had gone through the death. They had abandoned Jesus in the death. They'd been fighting amongst themselves as to which of them was the greatest prior to the death. And now afterwards, what they're saying is, at some point, something good has to come from this. We've been humiliated with our leader being naked at the crossroads outside the city and killed. But then he rose from the dead. And so now, certainly now, the kingdom's going to come. And you know what they mean by the kingdom. What they mean is, am I going to be minister of finance? Am I going to be commerce department? You know? Finally, can we get some of the goodies that we should have after three years of humiliation and degradation, having no place to lay our head, right? Having to suffer the mocking of everybody. Jesus says, it's not yours to know the time and the place. Jesus didn't say, I will never return in power and glory. Jesus didn't say, one day every knee won't bow. All right. But again, he didn't buy into them. What he said instead, and we see it in uh, chapter one, we see he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's his business. It's not your business. We're always wanting to know when God is going to make our son a national merit scholar, right? We're always want to know when our church is going to grow so it's not humiliatingly small. When, you know, I'm going to lose my weight—not you. I'm not worried about you weight, your weight, but when I'm going to lose my weight, you know, when my besetting sin will finally keep me from being humiliated. The father has fixed by his own authority, but. And that but is the pivot. Anytime you see a but when you're reading, you want to pay real attention to what comes afterward. But, okay, you're not going to win the lottery. It's Florida, it's not Indiana, okay? But, the consolation prizes, you will receive power. Now, when you hear that, what kind of power do you want? You want the power to be able to get a fox with character to marry you. You know, why is it that they always seem to be separated? You know, you want to have a handsome, godly man. You want to have an American handsome, godly man, a rich American, a rich American, godly, handsome man with either an MD or a PhD, but certainly not an MA and be power when somebody tells us you will receive power our minds immediately go to the kind of concerns that the disciples had which is we want the power to get the woman of our choice we don't want unrequited love it's painful We want the power to be able to convince our boss that we're every bit as good as we think we are. We want the power to be able to get our wife to love us without having to talk to her, right? We want the power of not being susceptible to terrorists. We want the power of having our investments be the ones that beat the market. In other words, we're completely earthly-minded, even when it comes, maybe especially when it comes to the church, right? And so Jesus says, but you will receive power. And we're like, yeah, I'm going to receive power. And then he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, let me just tell you, that's not good. You do not want the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And that's the main thing I want you to understand today. The Holy Spirit is the enemy of the worldling. He is only the friend of the man of God and the woman of God. Don't ever forget that. God, it will not be trifled with. God, we don't jack him around with sacraments. We don't jack him around with church membership. We don't jack him around with circumcision. We don't jack God around by being members of Clearnote Church Bloomington. God is not a respecter of persons. And as my father would say to me over and over again, God is no man's debtor. God is God. And that is the greatest scandal to postmoderns. Because postmoderns live in a prison, a bondage of the approval of others. And God does not need your approval. And so what God does in our life is as high as the heaven is above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways your ways. And so when he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, the disciples should have had some inkling that it was going to be painful. Right? Has any person here ever experienced the work of the Holy Spirit without terrible pain? Thank you, sir. It just doesn't happen. And the reason is that we are not by nature good. We are by nature evil. We are by nature schemers of our own cult, of our own pride, of our own arrogance, of our own reputation. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he destroys our reputation. First with ourselves and then with others. And so the most precious gifts to our church over the last few years have been gifts when men and women's sins have just become so ugly, obvious, inescapable. And then as you watch when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of somebody, what beauty comes to the body of Christ. As we're in agony, the beauty is just glorious. Because all of a sudden, all of us are freed to not burnish our image anymore, you know? So it doesn't matter anymore what car we drive, it doesn't matter anymore how clean the, uh, the edges, the corners of the, the, the most uh, glorious sanctuary <laughs> with our chemical barrels. For sound. We didn't think they were, it was a piece of modern art. I hope that it encourages you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Now that word witness in Greek is the word that we get the word martyr from, "martyrius." And so in Greek, you will be my martyrs. Now, of course, it didn't have the meaning that it has for us today because of when, he, when he used it then, they didn't know that most of them were going to die in martyrs' deaths. Right? But here we have Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses. And then he says, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and of course, they're... They're comfortable with that, although the comfort level is declining as he goes through the list, especially Samaria, because Samaria is like, uh, 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 it's like uh, mulattoes. It's people that aren't white or black, mixed. That's what Samaria was. So it was God's people, but corrupted by others. But then he says, even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay, so here they are. When's the kingdom going to come? We're going to get the lottery ticket. We're going to have the winning lottery ticket, you know? And he says, it's not for you to know. It's the Father's. But, consolation prize. You will receive power. Negative, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my martyrs, martyrius, in Jerusalem. yeah. Washington D.C. I'm in the city for the city, and in all Judea. Well, well, that's still sort of good, you know. And in Zimbabwe, and in and even to Bedford, Peru, Brazil even to Kentucky. Now, that's what he said to them. Then he ascended to heaven. And then we pick up the story with chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Now, what was the day of Pentecost? Well, the day of Pentecost was the day when the law of God was revealed on Sinai. And they celebrated it as a high holy day. That's the origin of the word holiday, holy day. They celebrated it as a holy day because the day of Pentecost was the day uh, equivalent to the 4th of July in the United States of America. And the reason is that when God revealed the Ten Commandments as moral law on the top of Mount Sinai, that was the day that the Jewish religion was created. And it was a religion of observing God's law. Okay? Everybody with me? And so here they are in Jerusalem celebrating the day that their religion was created when God gave the moral law to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. All right? And so on the day of Pentecost, God sends his Holy Spirit... And his Holy Spirit causes them all to speak the message of God. And as it happens, there are the, 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 the goyim, okay, Bob? The, the disgusting non-Jews. In other words, all the races are there. It's not just Jews. You saw that because of all the languages they spoke, and even proselytes. So we know there were some there that weren't even Jewish, And all of them heard, in their own language, the preaching. All right? Now think about this. God is not stupid. God is not sort of after the fact, looking at what he did and saying, oh, well, there's some congruity there. God set apart his people with the law on the top of Mount Sinai. Then he commanded them to observe Pentecost, which was the time of his creation of his people, through the proclamation of his law. And now there is to be the proclamation of the law of the gospel. Then it was the Jews, now it is all nations. Okay? And so here God is saying, hey, that's kind of cool. No, 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 no. (laughs) No. He is showing us that there is a new church and the new church is a church of grace and of the Lamb lifted up drawing all men to himself not just Jews and not the law but the gospel and so here is Pentecost and it has the added advantage of having people from all over the world there in Jerusalem so the whole world will know about it right? And that's the beginning of the story. You've had people from all over the place, Jews, Gentiles, just a complete melange. all right. Just a messy group of every ethnic group, every race, every language. And God then sends healing to the Tower of Babel. And so God broke us all up And so, not only were the Jews the only race that received the law, but it was received in their language and therefore helped to keep the boundaries clear. But now, right at the beginning of the gospel, he blows apart the curse of Babel through a supernatural gift whereby every man is spoken to by the power of the Holy Spirit through the individual Christians to them in their own language. It wasn't that they all heard and understood. The miracle was where the Spirit of God and the power of God sat, which was the Christians. Right? It wasn't that everybody all of a sudden started interpreting one person. It was that the the tongues were the foreign languages. And so, here you see something that's completely in opposition to the entire charismatic world, which is this. Rather than being a means of assuring yourself of salvation, of assuring yourself of a second act of grace, of burnishing your image because you have a private prayer language, right? Rather, tongues is, now you know how I say this, right? You ready? Rather, tongues is helpful. Here's an idea. Spiritual work always should be merely, all right, you ready? Helpful. Pastors should be helpful. It's our highest aspiration is for you to confess your sins to us so we get your mess all over us. And then we're helpful, and we're ready to die and face God. That's it. No mother has ever aspired to anything more than to be helpful to her child. And so tongues are not a means of separating Christians. They're a means of bringing them together. Tongues are helpful. And guess what? If tongues aren't helpful, in other words, if they build your pride and if they make you think you're superior to other people, they're destructive and and a pox upon them. (laughs) All right? So look at the symbolism. Pentecost, the founding of the church through the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. They observe it, observe it, observe it. They're in Jerusalem from all over the world to observe it. All of a sudden, the, the, the Babel of languages is smashed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the tongues are helpful. And all of them hear the word of God in their language, the word of the Holy Spirit. Whew. You know what drives me stark raving mad is people that put an emphasis on the sacraments that is unbiblical Whereby it assumes a precedence over the preaching of the word. I guarantee you that there's never been a time in history when the Holy Spirit has come in power and it has not been through the preaching of God's word. You look at the Old Testament, you say, What on earth is with all those prophets going on and on and on? And, you know, after a couple verses, you get the point. You know, it's not really uplifting. You know, can't we just do the words and we have the Eucharist? And so you go around the world, and if you want to know a church that's dead, it's people that only attend church when they need a sacrament. And so the church that I served when I came out of seminary was a reformed church, and guess what? A huge proportion of the members of that church came Christmas because the wives, the women like it. It's about babies. And Easter, because, well, you know, (laughs) it's kind of an important holiday. And burials, because what are you going to do? Go to the trash man. And baptisms, because, you know, when a baby's born, you want to do something religious so that you can trust God when you haven't disciplined your child and he's doing drugs and sleeping with women and and so you got to do the baptism and weddings. And so all over the world are churches which have no preaching of the word but boy they get those places where people feel they need to have some sort of transcendent spiritual experience and some sort of membership. (laughs) You know they got and, and, and then if you get really good at it, you multiply the sacraments. Instead of two, you have three or four or five or six or seven. And boy, those sacraments just keep those people in line, you know? It's kind of like mom's rules at the table. Don't eat with your mouth full. Put your napkin in your lap. Say please. Ask for things. Don't reach. And we're, we're close to seven. I don't know what the next two are, right? And so the Roman Catholic Church has everybody, poop, 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 and then last rites, and then you're ready. And where's the preaching of the word? I was reading the last couple of weeks the history of Geneva. And what I found out about Geneva in the time of the Reformation was there was no preaching by any priest in Geneva. None. Hadn't gone on for centuries. The only preachers in Geneva were mendicant friars. Itinerants who lived off of alms and who went around Europe preaching. What was the priest doing? Oh, he was doing the sacraments. And that is the direction of the Reformed world today, where everybody thinks, you know, can't we have a rapprochement between Protestant and Catholic, you know? And, and, you know, the Catholics have something about the sacraments. And so everybody's talking about liturgy and sacraments. When the Holy Spirit, you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and, and you shall improve your liturgy and multiply your sacraments. Now listen, I'm not against sacraments. There is the Lord's table in front of you, but sacraments are never to be celebrated if there is not the preaching of the word. And I don't hesitate to preach the word when the sacraments are not present. You see the order? And guess what? When the Reformation came, it's hard to argue what is the most important part of the Reformation. Absolutely no question that the Reformation was an unbelievable explosion of preaching. Unbelievable. Calvin preached something like, I want to say, 2,500 sermons. I mean, think about that. They had sermons constantly. Sundays, multiple sermons. They had sermons all through the week. And if somebody fell into sin in the church, guess what they told them to do? You know? You cut your, hair, your wife's hair off in a fit of anger, go to 25 sermons. You hit your husband with the clay pot, go to 25 sermons. <laughs> I mean, it was like one size fits all. Go to sermons. And so we look at this text. On the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent, rushing wind. And we've heard that so many times that it just it doesn't send a chill up and down our spine. Why did God have a violent rushing wind come upon them? To call attention. To get everybody interested in what was going on. A violent rushing wind. Not the still small whisper. None of this false pomo humility. Out there and loud. A violent rushing wind. Now, We don't think of it this way, but remember how I say if the Holy Spirit comes on you, it's humiliating, and never do you grow spiritually without pain, right? Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Nicodemus came to him to ask about being born again, and Jesus said to him in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, all right, He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed what I said to you. You must be born again. And then listen to this. The wind, the wind, not a breeze, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here we have the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying. Now, it's not the only fulfillment. This is being fulfilled in the heart of every person who is born again by the Spirit of God. Every one of us can testify to the wind of the Holy Spirit. And it's just, you know, it's like, uh, it's like those pictures of the TV guys down in a hurricane, you know. and I'm trying to stand. And it just blows them right over, right? That's how it is when God works with us. We can try to hold on. We can try to maintain our composure. And then at some point, you give up and you're carried by the wind. That's a beautiful picture of conversion. Isn't that? You're just carried away. But then, listen to this. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 says this about Jesus. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier. Does mightier sound like a feminine or a masculine word? Come on, please. Come on. Come on. It's masculine. One who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I keep trying to figure out how to explain to pomo effeminate men that God will not save an effeminate man. And you think, the audacity of him saying that. I say, don't you know the sinless? It says neither homosexuals nor effeminate. Did you not know that was in Scripture? They won't inherit the kingdom of God. And you say, well, yeah, but you're using it in a different way. I say, yes, I'm using it in opposition to the statement of Scripture that says that the kingdom of God is coming in power and violent men seize it. I'm using it in opposition to what John the Baptist truly testified about Jesus, which is he will what? It says he will baptize you. All right? With the Holy Spirit and fire. And then you know the next thing it says? It says his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know what there's needed in religion today? A restoration of manliness. Every single thing I read is manly. Now that doesn't demean women to say that. Men take a certain pleasure in a winnowing fork and burning the chaff. Right? All right. And so here comes the Holy Spirit and the wind is so powerful that everybody in Jerusalem hears about it. God is not a puppet. He is not a postmodern, effeminate man. I have to use an illustration at this point that's a little weird, all right? And so I'm involved in a wedding, somebody tells me. I'm not sure who's getting married, but I know it's it's personal. It, it, it's like consuming my home. and And I have heard say that that some of you have been, uh, shall we say, recalcitrant. Hey. Isn't that a good word? Uh, some of you have been, shall we say, impolite in sending your RSVPs. Now listen to me. Who would, who would be concerned about form like that? I mean... Can't we all just get along? And so, as I was preparing to preach, I was thinking about the late RSVPs. And I was thinking this What did God say about the coming of the kingdom of God? Do you know what he said? He said some couldn't be bothered right now because they just bought a new tractor, and others couldn't be bothered right now because they just bought some land. And then, do you remember, do you remember the virgins in their lamps without oil? And when God sees us hesitating because we're worldlings and we love the things of this world, does God wheedle and cajole us? Does God come up next to us and stroke our cheeks and say, "There, there, get you goo"? Does God treat us like our mother would? Now, some of you as mothers would actually do a better job than your husbands. (laughs) No. God says to heck with them. You go out, you find the cripple, you find the lame, you find the sinners. Because my house will be full. You understand that every single thing that Jesus did upset the people that were working the sacraments at, at, at that time. The religious leaders consistently were found Jesus' enemies. And the sinners, for the first time, they had hope. God is not to be mocked by us jacking him around with sacraments and church membership and this fancy thing we do. No, 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 no. God is the wind. God is fire. And violent men seize it. Listen, if you're going to be a sinner, would you please not lie about it? Have the dignity to be an honest sinner. Because then there's hope for you. You really think that when Jesus said he didn't come for the righteous but for sinners, what he meant was that there's a whole category of you out there that are righteous? (laughs) No, Jesus was making fun of us. You know? You know, that'd be like me in the kitchen with all the grandchildren over and say, I, I'm not going to the freezer for those of you that don't like ice cream. I'm here for the people that like ice cream. It's like, uh, where is that category? Little <laughs> children have more sense than is a diet. And so here, here Jesus And John the Baptist are fulfilled. The wind and the fire. And how do they show up? They show up so loudly that nobody can deny them. And then what do they do? They bring dignity to the preaching of the gospel. They are servants to the words that God inspires in the individuals. Did you see that? Look at the text and began, verse 4, to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Jody was right. It is the word of God when you preach. And you say, well, yeah, but you make all kinds of mistakes and I can see your sin as as you preach and I say, I know. And you say, gotcha. Run rings around you logically. And I say, well, as he gave them utterance and they were sinners, Paul was a sinner, Peter was a sinner, right? One of the things that's fun to do with Roman Catholics is is ask them, okay, so like when exactly does the Pope speak ex cathedra? Because that's the time he's supposed to speak without error. And oh boy, he just get this rigmarole. He just run around and around. Well, you know, but on the other hand, but on the other hand, but on the one hand, but if you, but then, but we, but, but, but. Hypothetically, you know, but, but actually never. Except when an ecumenical council meets. So Vatican II was an ecumenical council, right? Just like Trent, right? Well, Vatican II is kind of embarrassing. It was an ecumenical council, right? Well, yeah, but... I mean, there was a spirit abroad in the church at that time that maybe wasn't entirely healthy. And so I myself only go to a Tridentine Mass. Listen... When the Holy Spirit works, the Holy Spirit works through words. The words of Scripture, the words of sinful men with feet of clay. As I've said to you over and over, quoting Calvin, he could have sent you an angel, but he chooses to send you a man who is sinful because when I preach to you, you are humiliated because I'm your inferior. You can see that I don't dress well, I don't eat well, I don't smile well. I'm not sufficiently humble. I'm not humble at all. I'm arrogant. As as a dear lady said to me as she left a couple weeks ago, she said, I listened to you on the internet, and you're arrogant on the internet. But you weren't this morning. Somehow that didn't make me feel better, you know. (laughs) God is pleased to humiliate you. Do you understand this? It is not about me. You think it's about me because you don't want to have to lower yourself to feed from an idiot, an arrogant idiot. And so you make it about me, but it has nothing to do with me. The Holy Spirit always works through men who are sinners, through women who are sinners. You won't listen to your mother's rebuke because she sins and she's not got it entirely right, right? (laughs) Come on. Now, I want to end by going down and showing you how this section ends. Would you look at verse 13 and see that the final verse says this? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Remember how I told you that you don't want the Holy Spirit to come on you in power because the Holy Spirit always humiliates you. Do you see what those people were accused of there? They were accused of being drunk. So the Holy Spirit has come on them in power with wind, come on power with fire. They are preaching the word of God. The new church is being created as they stand there listening. And they are mocking them. Now next week we're going to come back to the text and I'm going to show you that at the very end of the sermon the final thing he says to them is save yourselves from this corrupt generation. All right, we'll come back to that next week. But right here I want you to see in verse 13 they were mocking them of being drunk. Now how different is it to mock you for being drunk, to mock you for being a fanatic religiously, to mock you for being a cult? How different is it? Do you know that um, the elders of this church are mocked all the time? And do you know who mocks them most consistently? Most consistently, they're mocked by family members who have a child in this church who has decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And then it is the parents who are half-religious, and often reformed, and they are absolutely opposed to their children following Jesus. Make no mistake about it. And almost always, it has some connection to socioeconomics. They're not marrying up. And that's always been true across the church history that men of God have had to fight for children who don't want to be forced to marry out of the faith for the sake of money. Poor looks. Most always a college and graduate degree in a profession. And so they mock us. They mock us, they mock us, they mock us. They say we're a cult, they say we're fanatics, and all their daughter wants is to not have to go through another seven years of professional training and just to be a wife and a mother. In other words, that's how godliness comes to her She all of a sudden sheds all the worldling stuff and she says, can I please be a wife and a mother? And we have a mother of this church named Rita Cuffey who was in her graduate program at Harvard in astronomy, had a full fellowship, and then she met Jimmy and she went into her major professor and she said, I'm turning in my fellowship. He said, well, you don't have to do that. She said, well, I'm getting married. He said, you can be married and pursue your fellowship. She said, you know something, when I'm out there at night, at the observatory, looking at the stars. I'm cold, and I would rather be at home in my husband's bed with his body keeping me warm. She's such a stupid woman. Went to Boston Latin School. She's so stupid. And so we have women today who hear God say, that his plan is to make a woman safe in her own home, with her children all of shoots around her table, and Christian parents mock that daughter. And if I could, if you think I'm being hyperbolic, you look at and around. There are elders here. Raise your hand, elders. You go to these elders and you ask them what they've seen from Presbyterian and Reformed parents for years. Huh? Always, always enemies. They come to weddings here, they are livid because their daughter is not fulfilling their expectations, or their son's not fulfilling their expectations. You will receive power. And after this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And I ask you, is there any witness in our world today which is more out there and loud than a woman who is intelligent, who is self-disciplined, and who has children and honors her husband? Can you think of something that's more a perfect neutron bomb to blow to smithereens postmodernism? It's a heat-seeking missile and it done found its heat. Come on. Kate Bedinghouse and and, and some other troublemaker just contacted the alumni magazine of uh, an eminent eminent Christian college as part of the Coalition of Christian Colleges and ranked number one in regional liberal arts schools in in Gas City and Upland. (laughs) And they asked the magazine if it would be possible to have one of the articles about graduates about women who are having children. And seeing that as a very uh, sort of diverse and pluralistic proposal, because of course every other one is about this woman that ran for senate and that woman that ran for uh, muckety-muck steward of the muckety-muck who knows what. it, it just seemed a little bit over the top to say no, and so they said to Kate and the other troublemaker, well, go ahead. So we'll see what kind of editing it gets. <laughs> you will receive power, and after this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my martyrs, first to Upland, then to Wheaton, and then to the Midwest, and then To Saharan Africa. Not even sub Saharan. Now, I want to end with an illustration. So, the Holy Spirit comes on them, the new church is created. It's the law of the gospel, not the law of the law. All right? And it blows apart Babel, the tongues are helpful. And the response, when the Holy Spirit is poured out in an unbelievable way, is that they mock them. You all have that in your brain. Everybody's got that in their brain. If this church is to be a faithful church, it cannot escape the treatment that its master got. It is impossible to be a faithful church and to be superior to the master who created the church. He said, no servant is greater than its master. If they hated me, they will hate you too. And what I always get from university people when I say this is they always say to me, are you telling us that we should seek people not to like us? And I say, did I say that? Did Jesus say that? No. What we're saying is that if you don't have people mocking you, then you have lost your savor as salt. You have hidden your light under a bushel because Jesus said no servant is greater than his master. You say, well, you're telling me to go make a fool of myself in public. I'm saying, no, 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 please don't do that. Just don't resist it when God does that. But intellectuals with PhDs have never been able to get that point. It seems to me to be a fairly obvious distinction. You know, the distinction between going out and seeking to be a public fool... And going out and seeking to be a witness and having people mock you. Those are two different things. And so why is it that they mock them? Well, let me read this to you. 25 years ago, there was a huge fire in Yosemite, or Yellowstone. And it was called the North Fork Fire. And every time I read a story about fire, I always think of the Holy Spirit and i encourage you to do that just anytime you read anything about fire in the news anywhere think the holy spirit and think of whatever the fire is consuming as being religion it's consuming religion it's consuming what the church okay and so this fire comes to this huge forest in yellowstone all right And all the people who think that their existence is bound up with making Yellowstone a place that the tourists like to be, are all of a sudden confronted with a force of nature that's every bit as powerful as large trees. And they have to decide whether they really love nature or not. And it's a fix they're in. Because nature's actually the one destroying the trees they're hugging which bring in a lot of tourists and a lot of money. So now listen to this. This is a ranger speaking to the people that are upset about how the fire is burning and burning and burning their trees, all right? And the ranger says, but the main thing is folks just hate to see the park change. Now the park is what? The trees are what? They're the church, religion, right? The main thing is people hate to see the church change. All right. They think it's being ruined. People have a tendency to want things as they are, but in nature nothing stays as it is. So you insert the word the Holy Spirit there. All right, for nature, okay? Once all those blowdowns were standing 10 or 15 years ago or even 5 years ago and now they're not. Now you've got all the deadfall. Come on guys. Waken your brain. Now you have all the deadfall. It used, to, it used to stand. It used to look like good church members. All right? Now they've got all the deadfall. For 10 and 15 years it built up, and nature is hollering. "I'm getting ready to start over!" We'd like to shout, "No, not now. We're not ready for you, but that ain't the way it works, folks. To someone who feared for the park, however, or whose vacation plans had been ruined, or had been awakened early in the morning and told that he and his family would have to leave the park, the ranger's statement that, quote, fire is a stimulant and is important to the ecosystem as sunshine and rain was probably little consolation. And a man who was concerned about the tourism that supported three hotels and four restaurants he owned in town asked if there was any way, and this is my favorite part, if there was any way the fire managers, okay, okay, the preacher, all right, if there was any way the fire managers could preserve what he called a green belt of unburned trees along the highways to create an illusion of scenery. The perfect description of elders' meetings. <laughs> Go ahead and let the Holy Spirit work, but can't we hide it from the people? Have an illusion of Greenbelt. A man sitting behind me said that instead of any more talk about trying to contain the fires, he wanted to hear some more about putting them out. How many congregational meetings have we heard that? A woman on the other side of the room asked if it wasn't possible, quote, to use those big water bombers and just come in and super saturate everything. They do that in other parts of the country, you know. <laughs> Isn't that great? All right. In Yellowstone, the controversy persists. The concern is not only whether nature should have its way, but also whether the park, a public trust, should be a stage where nature performs. Unbelievable. But if not Yellowstone, where? If not the church, where? If not the church, where? Park ecologists continue to believe that natural regulation works, but most people are made uneasy by the fact that nature regulates more strenuously than human beings might. It seems that we want nature, but don't want it to be entirely natural. We want wilderness to behave More than most natural occurrences, I think, more than, say, an earthquake or a volcanic eruption, forest fires touch off a basic frustration with nature. Man believes, now mind you, (laughs) the New Yorker, I'm not making this stuff up. Listen to the end. Man believes that he has taken possession of fire and therefore that he controls it. But then a wildfire that lasts for months and burns almost a million acres snatches that authority away. More than $25 million was spent just on the attempt to put the North Fork fire out. $120 million on all of the Yellowstone fires. Ultimately, according to the post-fire assessment, the largest firefighting effort in the history of the United States, quote, probably did not significantly reduce the acreage burned, unquote. The only thing that is going to help your rebellious son and the only thing that's going to help your marriage and the only thing that will help us as a church and the only thing that will create the Christian church And the only thing that could clean up the Middle Ages is a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's all. And if we don't have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter what our liturgy, what our sacraments, what our music, it doesn't matter how many children we have. God is the one that changes the human heart. And the work of the Holy Spirit in changing our hearts is unbelievably vigorous and rigorous and painful and manly. And this church must be a place that exists for the sake of the Holy Spirit doing as he wills. And no man should get in the way of that. No man. No man. And so if you're a sinner, what I want to say is you're safe here, but I can't say that because I'm afraid that we will hurt you. But if you can trust God that We don't want to hurt you. We want to hurt the righteous so that they leave. If you're a sinner, please give us the dignity of living amongst us as the Holy Spirit works with you. That's the highest aspiration we have as a church. you're probably wondering what's going through my mind now and I'm stopping to think about every person I look at and I'm thinking, yes, they've shared their sin with me. And I'm thinking, and I started with you, Mary. You've been such a beautiful sinner this last year. And oh, you have given such joy to me. Be a sinner. Let the Holy Spirit work. Because if you don't, you will be spun out here. You, you know, we'll play crack the whip, and you'll be at the end, and you'll be so busy trying to keep your coat fastened and your tie straight <laughs> that you'll forget to hold on. But it's the Holy spirit that holds on.